ongoing study of God's oaths and God's covenants in the Bible and how important they are. Um, once we cross over from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's questions that have to be asked of a preacher, which is, where do you go? Where do you start in the New Testament? Of course, I could go to the Gospel of Matthew. I could go to the Gospel of John um, and start with that prologue. But I've decided to um, to start with Luke because Luke, I think, gives us probably the most continuity between the Old Testament covenant hope and and the New Testament uh, crossover, as it were. And what we're looking for is we're looking for expectation. What would the expectation be from the Old Testament uh, witness of those who 500 years or whatever after Malachi, after the close of the Old Testament canon, um, they... Uh, God finally reveals new truth. What would they be anticipating? This is such an important question. Well, genealogies show us in, in uh, Matthew's gospel, they show us that there's an expectation of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. That Israel would have a land and Israel would be a people, a special people of God. That's the Abrahamic covenant. The Davidic covenant covers the uh, expectation of a king reigning from Jerusalem over a renewed Israel and in this world. And both of these expectations did not really uh, come to fruition in this time. In fact, during the intervening period from the end of uh, Malachi to the beginning of the Gospels, that four to five hundred year period, there had been a lot, a lot of uh, ups and downs in the history of Israel. Uh, The Greek Empire had risen and had uh, then dissipated into four uh, separate kingdoms and those separate kingdoms, particularly uh, in Egypt and also in uh, centered around Antioch and Syria, those that had a huge impact upon Israel in uh, the 200s BC it led to a kind of an uprising in the second century BC of the Hasmonians. You wouldn't have heard of the Hasmonians, but you may have heard of the Maccabees. You may have heard of Judas Maccabeus and so on. They uh, rebelled, and they even managed to cleanse the temple um, in the second century, the uh, what's called Hanukkah. But the Romans came in, The Romans were defeated all of their foes and they had a firm iron grip on their empire. And Israel was not a free nation as had been promised in the Old Testament. 
Rome very much was in control. That is the situation as we go into the New Testament. There are promises in the Old Testament that are yet to be fulfilled. And the question for many pious people at this time is, when is God going to act? When is God going to finally send Messiah, the great coming one, the expected ruler, the one that the Old Testament prophets have spoken about from the time of uh, the Pentateuch all the way through to Malachi? And the Gospels answer that question. But they don't answer it exactly the way that people thought. I mean, well, they do and they don't. You see, if you recall in the Old Testament, there are prophecies about the Messiah that he comes in irresistible power to set up his throne and, and his kingdom of peace upon the earth, okay? Think about the wolf lying down with the lamb and all of that good stuff, yes? But then there are also promises... The most clear one is in Isaiah 53, that this coming one, this servant, would have to die. Yes? Would have to die for the sins of others. So how do you, how do you bring these two things together? Surely somebody who comes in irresistible power is not going to be put to death. So what happened before uh, the coming of Christ is that there were two views of, of these passages, the, the passages that spoke of Messiah as suffering and the passages that spoke of Messiah as reigning. Some people, like you see this in the Dead Sea Scrolls, some people believed that there were two Messiahs, okay, a suffering one and then a ruling one. That kind of takes care of that disparity, you see. It was very hard for them to conceive of the promised one dying. It, it just, it just, it was hard to understand. But it was clearly foretold in the Old Testament. Well, the New Testament is going to answer that question. Recall also that in the Old Testament, the promises of the first coming and the second coming are what? They are fused together in the prophecies, okay? So they, what you have to do is you have to prize them apart, and you have to, now that we have the New Testament, you have to say, oh, yeah, that was fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, but, oh, that, that's yet to be fulfilled. That's going to be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. And you have to do that with a lot of prophecies about Messiah in the Old Testament. You even have to do it in certain passages in the New Testament, too. So this brings us, therefore, to the uh, annunciation of the coming of Messiah, which you find, of course, in Matthew, and you find it here in Luke. And what you're going to discover is that the expectations of uh, God's um, election of Israel and the coming of the, the great Messiah are in line with what those prophecies say. In other words, they're taken literally. They are not spiritualized. Do you know what I mean by spiritualizing? Put your hand up if you know what I mean by spiritualizing. But when you spiritualize something, you say, uh, for example, 
when it says that Jesus will come and sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, a spiritualization of that will be, oh, Jesus came and he's now sat on David's throne in heaven. Do you see? So Jesus now is reigning on David's throne in heaven, even though it's not David's throne. But they spiritualized it, do you see? And all of the promises that are made uh, to Israel, that it's going to be the head and not the tail, it's going to be a great nation with peace and prosperity and uh, glory, that that, well, that you can't take that literally, spiritually, all that good stuff is applied to the church which is the people of God now, you see. Israel was kind of just a type of the church. And so all of that stuff is applied to the church. And the church is in some sense reigning now, spiritually. You know, personally I prefer the literal. I prefer to be reigning literally rather than spiritually, because spiritually stinks, quite honestly. You know, there's not much reigning going on. But anyway, that's what spiritual... That's what they do, okay? And a lot of people do that. Well, as I said, what you read in the early chapters of Matthew and Luke is literal interpretation. So we're going to see this. We'll see that, that Mary took the angel literally, okay? She took the angel literally because the only thing that she had was the Old Testament promises, Okay, I'm sorry for that long intro, but it's important as we cross over into the New Testament. You might think that uh, going to Luke 1 is a bit premature because we're not in Christmas. I know if you go to the stores, I know if you go to Costco and so on, they've got Christmas stuff out there. Okay, I try to close my eyes when I go in Costco and not notice it. Okay, it's like, this is ridiculous. Um, so am I doing a bit of that? Am I just taking my lead from Costco and I'm bringing Christmas stories to you now in October? No, because this isn't a Christmas story. This is a historical account of the birth of Jesus. And unfortunately, because of Christmas, we always stick it and pigeonhole it in that holiday. And we don't kind of, we kind of, when we, I do anyway, when we think about these passages, we also think about Christmas trees and we think about lights and and stuff. Well, we need to take it out of that context and read it for what it is. You may have noticed that I've put rather bland headings on my outline. Okay, an angel sent to a woman related to David. It's kind of not very inspired and not very imaginative, is it? That's deliberate. That's deliberate because we are so familiar with these passages that we actually don't focus on what's going on. So I've kind of done it in a more of a reporting thing. Angels, uh, Gabriel's announcement and then a virgin birth. So that we'll look at it aside from Christmas. Okay? So don't think Christmas. Okay? In the, in this message. Otherwise, you won't be interpreting it correctly. Verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel 
was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Okay, Gabriel is known in the Old Testament. That's why he's named here. How did he appear? We don't know how he appeared. I do know how he didn't appear, though. He didn't appear in a white shawl with wings sticking out of them. Okay? That's not what an angel is in the Bible. Okay? An angel does not have wings anywhere in the Bible. Okay? So that's just how artists have represented them. Angels, when they appear in the Bible, always appear as men. Okay? Not men with big appendages on the back either. Just men. Now, it's probable that he appeared uh, quite suddenly. It's probable that he was very impressive. But there's nothing here that uh, tells us that he overpowered her by... Uh, the way that he looked. So this man appears before Mary. This would have been quite, you know, odd and unusual, certainly, especially in that culture, for a man to just show up at a a maiden's uh, door here. But obviously it was, she understood it was a supernatural messenger. And she, if she didn't, straight away she would soon realize this. She comes to this city uh, called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, we've all heard of it because Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. But Nazareth was a very small, it wasn't really a city, it was a small community in uh, northern Israel. In fact, The critical scholars years ago used to say, well, there's no real independent reference to Nazareth in the record. So they even question whether Nazareth even existed at the time of Jesus. Well, we now know that it did. The liberals are always wrong. The critics are always, just as one thing you can guarantee about the critics is they will be proven wrong. Okay? They're just looking for an excuse for their unbelief. They're not looking for the truth, okay? So Nazareth existed, and Nazareth was just a few miles away, just a short journey away from a very important trade route that ran through Galilee from Syria in the north and Lebanon and uh, went down into Egypt. And you would have merchants from, like, what is modern-day Turkey, they would come down from there. And from Arabia, they would come down that way too. Mesopotamia, Babylon, and so on, they would come that way. So you would have a lot of different peoples who would come through very close to Nazareth, which means it was quite cosmopolitan, not in its population, but just in its uh, understanding and uh, familiarity with different cultures, different looking people who would come down that road. That's very important. Galilee, in fact, was called Galilee of the Gentiles because all of the Gentiles who would come through it and some of them would settle there. Okay? So uh, that's the first thing that we understand. We, that, that This is something where you'd have a lot of people who would stream through this area. Many of them would be Greek-speaking because of the extent of Alexander the Great's empire that went all over that area, all the way up to India. And many of them 
uh, many people uh, not only spoke their indigenous language, but they also spoke Greek. Okay? That's something to remember too. And it says that Gabriel was sent by God to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So he's not sent to Joseph, although he does have a word with Joseph as well. But he's not sent to Joseph. He's sent to Joseph's fiancé, if you like, modern terminology, a virgin who is betrothed to a man. Now, again, this idea of a virgin, the word in Greek means virgin. In the Old Testament, that prophecy, a virgin will conceive, yes, and bring forth a son in uh, Isaiah 7. Uh, that word can mean, it can be translated as maiden, okay? But here, the, uh, that word is translated by a word that means maiden. So that means that the word means virgin in Isaiah. All right? Okay. The virgin's name was Mary. So Mary here is going to marry into a family that is related to whom? David. So that, what would that uh, conjure up there for? When people, you know, Joseph, you know, when he was talking to people and he would talk about his genealogy because that was very important in those days, say, well, I am a direct descendant of David, okay? He would be very proud of that, okay? And he would always think in terms of the covenant that God made with David to send an, a, uh, an ancestor, sorry, not an ancestor, uh, what's the word? I've forgotten the word. Descendant, thank you. Descendant of David, and that descendant would sit on the throne of David and rule over all power, and he would bring peace and prosperity and righteousness to Israel. Joseph would know that, and Mary, as she was getting married to him, would know that too. So God is beginning to move here. This is just, though, a woman. I mean, she's a righteous woman, she's a good woman, but she's just a woman. Okay, She doesn't float two feet off the ground. She doesn't have a halo over her head. She's just a woman. She's a good woman. And she's going to marry into this house. And it, and it uh, appears, though, from Luke's uh, account, also his genealogy, that she has some, also, she has some connection with the house of David as well, from her lineage. So, what this passage is telling us, therefore, is that an angel from God sent at particular time to announce something to a woman in the northern part of Israel, which is not the classy part, not the cool part, not the part that you would expect. You know, all the action was down in Jerusalem. 
this small, tiny, insignificant town called Nazareth is to be the place of the first visitation, the first, as it were, main revelation from God for 500 years. It's quite extraordinary. God's not impressed by our cities. He's not impressed by our cultures. He's not impressed by, you know, the things that that, uh, distract us. God may show up in some very unexpected places. Because his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways, okay? And certainly that is what we read of here. Well, what is Gabriel, what is uh, the angel going to say? Verse 28, having come in, so he's at the door. Yes? He doesn't just, he just doesn't uh, appear in front of her, okay? Like, he knocks at the door. And he comes in and the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. Not, not at him personally. Not like, you know, many people who saw an angel. I mean, they fall down as dead, don't they? Okay? They, he obviously didn't appear that way to her. But she is troubled at what he says. There's obviously some gravity, some authority. There's something about this individual, this Gabriel, that strikes her. Uh, as you would expect of somebody who comes from heaven. He's going to be different. He's going to look and sound different. Maybe in an imperceptible way, but there's going to be something about him that just catches the eye and catches the ear. This message, which is delivered with the full authority of God on high, is that she is to rejoice because she's been highly favored by God. Highly favored by God. A a tremendous honor and privilege is going to be given to her. And this honor and privilege is going to be greater than anything that could be bestowed by any worldly ruler, even by Caesar in Rome himself. Caesar didn't have any angels to send out to give messages for him. The Lord is with you. Which she was pious. She prayed. She uh, went to the temple. She uh, kept the feasts and the fasts. She was a, a, a good, godly woman. But she would not have considered that God had his eye on her in this special way. But now she knows that he does. You are blessed among women. This means that he's, uh, she's blessed among all women. All women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was, as anybody would. What's going on here? Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, 
Mary, though Gabriel knows her name, for you have found favor with God. It is amazing how many times in Scripture when an angel appears to a godly saint or even when God himself appears that some of the first words out of their mouth are do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That is so encouraging to me. That is so encouraging to me. That the angels know that they are imposing and they're kind of frightening to us lowly human beings here. But they're on our side. They are for us. And they are considerate of our state. And they want to communicate to us that there is no reason to be afraid of a visitation from heaven. Not if you're a saint. Because as a saint, you are actually a citizen of heaven. As a saint, you are beloved by God. Jesus, of course, later on, after he has risen, he appears, doesn't he, in, uh, just out of nowhere. Poof, there he is. And what are some of the first words out of his mouth? Do not be afraid. Heaven does, is, holds no fear for the believer. Heaven is a place of welcome for the believer. That's good to know. And so Gabriel here continues. Verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. So. What is he saying here? He appears to be saying, and Mary's going to check this in a minute, he appears to be saying that some kind of a conception is going to happen, a miraculous conception inside her womb, and she's going to have a son, and this son she is going to call by this name. Uh, Ye- uh, in Aramaic, it would be Yehu. In, uh, in Hebrew it would be Yeshua or Joshua, that's where our word Joshua comes from, or Jesus when you put it in the Greek, okay? It's all the same. It means God is salvation or God is savior, yes? Jehovah is salvation. Back in this time, names were extremely important. So the naming of this child is significant, This child who's going to be conceived in this way will be characterized by his name, which is that salvation is going to come from God through him. So I hope that you can see that the expectation level is beginning to rise the more this message is given to her. So it continues here, and this really seals it off. 
he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. Who's the highest? God. He will be called the son of God. Oh, well, that explains a virgin birth. And will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. The family you're marrying into, Mary. What's going to be her expectation when she hears these words? She's going to think of this glorious coming ruler who's been prophesied over the centuries in the Old Testament. She's going to give birth to this child who's going to rule. The prophecies are finally going to come through. I mean, it's unbelievable as it is. Who on earth is she? What is Nazareth? God, who's been quiet for centuries, now visits her. And the child's going to come through her. Surely there was a better, I mean, more impressive relative descendant of David that could have, you know, Gabriel could have uh, picked out. Yes? Somebody who was better off. Somebody who had bigger standing. Somebody who, who was more of an impressive character. Yes, they must have been around somewhere. I mean, just Gabriel needed to, what did he do? Just pick out the first one he could find. No, he picked out the right person. He picked out the godly woman, the one whom God particularly wanted to bear Jesus in the womb. You see, Jesus, of course, this is the human name of the eternal second person of the Trinity. Astonishing as that is. But finally, because of the plight of man, because of his sin, because of his helplessness, because of his condemnation, because of his waywardness, the only way that God was going to reconcile man who was made at the pinnacle of creation and then therefore the rest of creation with him is that... God himself would become a human being in his own creation. Astonishing as it is, that was the plan. And you can be absolutely certain that that was the only way that God could bring about the restitution of what he had created in Genesis 1. But this is very promising. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, this is, I mean, this is amazing. Finally, Rome's going to get thrown off. Caesar's going to get toppled off off of his throne. There is going to be this wonderful messianic kingdom that we've been studying and if, you, if you've been keeping up with these um, these sermons that we've been trying to portray in this series, it's finally going to come about. But Mary has a question. 
verse 34. How can this be, since I do not know a man? It's like, I understand what you're saying here, but there is a problem. Okay? Usually it takes a man and a woman to bring forth a child. I'm not even married yet, and therefore I'm, vir- I'm a virgin. What's, this is a little bit, um, you know, you're a little bit in front of yourself here. Why don't you just come back in a few months when I'm married? Yes? No, he's come at the, at the right time. He's come before um, there can be any consummation of the marriage because this must be a virgin birth. The Son of God, who is eternal, is not to be generated through a man and a woman, two sinners. He is to be to t- be given a body, a human body. He is to be put into a womb to grow up and to be uh, enter the world uh, through a birth and to grow up as a child and into a man just like any human being, because he's going to be a human being. Not a pretend one. It's not like, uh, you know, God beams him down when he's 30 years old, or as a 30-year-old, and he just steps out and starts being a human from then. No, no, no. God takes humanity seriously. God takes what it is to be a human being seriously. And what it takes to be a human being is to be born from a womb. And to grow up as a baby and to learn and to interact that way with your environment. So the second person of the Trinity is willing to do that. Just think about that for a few years. So how can this be? Well, the angel answered and said to her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest, that is God, of course, will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So his name is Jesus. But just in case you you need to understand who this is, it's going to be the Son of God. And as he's the Son of God... Not the the, uh, natural son of Joseph. That's why there has to be this miraculous birth. That's why Gabriel has been sent before the marriage. And this is fully in line with what Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 7.14. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. So we have the announcement here of a virgin conception, a virgin, and there will be a virgin birth. Now, I hope that you understand the importance of the virgin birth, okay? It is not something that you can uh, choose to not believe because it doesn't make sense. 
It doesn't make sense in a world without God. I will grant you that. But when you bring God the creator into your worldview, which he should be in your worldview, because otherwise you can't make sense of the world. You might even be uh, daft enough to believe that it all came out of nothing. Who would teach such a thing? When you bring God in, then the virgin birth makes perfect sense. After all, what is Mary? She's a human being who's a creation of that God. So it's not difficult if Mary's a creation of God, in the creation of God, for God to place a human zygote in her womb, is it? In fact, we would kind of uh, expect that if God was going to do things that way. So you see, things that appear absurd when you take God out of the question, are perfectly plausible and logical when God is included in the question. And it's here I want to just give a little warning. Please don't interpret the world in the way that the world wants you to interpret it. Please don't interpret the world as, you know, from a mechanistic, evolutionistic, naturalistic point of view. Because you'll interpret it wrongly, incorrectly. That's not true. That's rubbish. It doesn't make sense. And it avoids all of the hard questions about design and beauty and interaction with beauty and why we can do science and all of the rest of those things, okay? Consciousness and and such things. No, rather, when you look at the world, read it in light of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then understanding why the world's not like it should be in the light of chapter 3 of Genesis. And you'll get it. That's the truth. And if you read these uh, passages in the light of Genesis 1 through 3, this makes perfect sense. This is logical. This is God. And so, yes, there's to be a virgin birth. For with God, nothing will be impossible. I have to say something about this verse. This doesn't mean the way that it's sometimes represented because it's ripped out of its context. This doesn't mean that uh, anything is possible for God. Okay? There are things that are impossible for God. God cannot lie. Aren't you glad that's impossible for God? Okay. God can't make a square circle. Why? Because a square's not a circle. That's why. Okay? And God's not, this, that would be, to, to talk about a circle as if it was a square would be irrational and God's not irrational. Because irrationality doesn't comport with reality. Do you see? That's why it's irrational. What it means is that when something is in line with the divine wisdom, the divine character, and the divine will, then anything is possible for God if he chooses to do it that way. 
Okay? Please don't put your faith in passages like Luke 1.37, as if God's going to do something that seems impossible for you to get you out of a mess that you're in. Okay? That's not a good one to hang your hat on. Of course it's possible for God to do anything that he wants, but it's also possible to turn you into an elephant. But he's not going to do it. Do you understand? No, rather, put your faith in the, the presence of God, put your presence, uh, your, sorry, your faith in the promises of God for you and trust him as you pray to him and know that he's heard you. And however he answers, it will probably be in a rather mundane way, but however he answers, he will answer. He will be faithful. But here we're talking about something that really is unusual. There's never been before this a virgin birth, and there's never been one since it. So, what has all this got to do with the oaths of God then? Well, simply because this is the annunciation of the Messiah. This is the uh, promise coming to fruition of the great covenanted uh, king. Davidic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, and also the new covenant, as we will see. God's covenant promises cannot be changed. They will come through in the way that God has promised. And this rather inauspicious start begins this covenant story of the New Testament. And it's so important that we understand that as we go through the New Testament and as we, uh, as we encounter the, the uh, newness that is the church, that we don't lose, um, we, don't, we don't lose contact with these verses and their expectation because Mary did not spiritualize anything that David said. She didn't say, uh, oh, he's going to rule on a throne in heaven then, is he? Sorry? Did I say Jesus? Sorry, thank you for the con- uh, correction. I'll say that again then, okay? Um, she did not spiritualize anything that the angel said to her. And we should not spiritualize anything that God says to us. There's no need to. Okay? It doesn't take faith to believe in you in your spiritualization of something. Your spiritualization of what God says only proves that you don't believe him. Do you understand that? You don't believe what he said. So you're making it into something that you feel you can believe. Don't treat the word of God that way. Rather say, okay, is this in line with the Abrahamic covenant? Is this in line with the Davidic covenant? Is this in line with the new covenant? If it is, you better believe it because those covenants cannot be altered. 
So there's another thing that is impossible for God. It is impossible for God to go back on his oaths. Which becomes extremely important and hopeful for us. So here we are. Mary's response in conclusion here in verse 38 is, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Not according to a spiritualization of it, but according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Probably went out the door. Not sure. But a key thing here is is, uh, Mary's faith. What's your faith in? Is your faith in uh, man's reinterpretation of what God said? So that we can round off those hard edges, you know, those things that are really difficult to believe. Or will you just take God at his word and just let him be God? That's an important question. It's an important question in our daily lives. Are we going to fix the problems? Are we going to, to try to, you know, do things for God because he's not showing up and he's not doing what, he, what we think he should do? Or are we going to see what God says and we're going to trust him and let him do what he wants to do in our lives? It's very important. Mary was of the second kind of person. Let it be according to your word. And that's how we should be. Let it be to me according to your word. And that suffices. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that we would be like Mary. We are almost certainly are not going to be sent an angelic messenger because, uh, actually, we don't need one. We've got something just as authoritative. And that is the Bible. And the Bible tells us, Father, what you say, what you want us to believe. And help us, Lord, to uh, read it, to study it, to meditate upon it, and to believe it. And then, Father, we'll be the kind of people that, just like Mary, you look at and you are pleased with we will end up also being highly favored of the Lord because of all the promises that are ours in our Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the honor and the glory. Amen.